welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler, and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. In this episode of the Artist Appeals, I want to introduce you to a woman who has been on the forefront of artistic innovation for 50 years. She started out as one of the first graphic designers out there working in Fortran and some of the languages where you had to program graphic design. Crazy stuff. She's been an educator for 50 years, and she shares some really amusing and heartwarming stories in this episode of The Artist Appeals. I'd like to introduce you to Jen Gray, also known as Jen Zen. Hello, Jen, welcome. Good morning, Erin. It's nice to hear from you. Yes, it's so awesome to have you on. I'm so excited to have you here. So I always start out with talking about art because this is a podcast about art and how to have a business in the arts and how to make a living in the arts, how to make money in the arts. So you come from a very unique background. Can you tell us just a little bit about your style of art? You've been in the academia world, but you've also had some amazing and interesting innovations in the art world. Oh, my gosh. Oh, huh. Well, like a lot, a lot Summary, of Summary, less than five minutes. <laughs> okay, like a lot of artists, you know, of course, I started making art when I was a kid. I actually yeah. made my first book when I was four years old. Oh, really? A little folded yeah, book? Yeah, On uh, Actually, my father was a school teacher, so ah. I used the backside of, of school memos. He'd raid the trash at school for extra paper for me to draw on because he couldn't afford enough notebooks for me to... <laughs> you and, he'd bring up home too fast, the, huh? and he'd bring home the leftover crayons from the classes at school. So, you know, I never got bread because that was popular. Those were used up. So I, so I began a lot of my drawings in brown crayons on the back of school memos. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know? So by the time I was in the fifth grade, I was being hired to do, uh, paid to do rummage sales for the church signs. How <laughs> oh, cool. And, uh, by the time I was in high school, you know, I was a cartoonist mm-hmm. and uh, working for the school paper at uh, Sacred Heart of Mary High School in Rolling Meadows. And Adela Akers was my, my teacher in that high school. She was very encouraging. Mm. She taught art through the ages, kind of via Helen Gardner when I joined the class because she decided that scholarship was a really important part of being an artist. Mm. But... Uh, that was interesting. I got a job in the school paper working as the school cartoonist, and uh, that had some cachet because the school paper won the high school newspaper of the year award when I joined it as a cartoonist. I did layout design, I, did, I had a cartoon strip, and I did editorials. I didn't know you were a cartoonist to begin with and that you were into books. I mean, I've known you from the 3D world. And it's really interesting. As a student, I did that. You know, Uh so I I made a portfolio from my schoolwork and I applied for a job as soon as I could at at a real, what I call the real place of of interesting employment, as opposed to all the part time jobs I had up to that point. 
And I applied for a job as a, a graphic artist. I was a, a teenager at the time, still in hmm. high school, at GNS Designs Incorporated, which turned out to be an interesting thing to do because GNS Designs Incorporated was being run by a woman, Dee Dee Grums, who was in her mid 20s, and it was the first online computer graphics company in the Midwest. Hmm. It was the second computer graphics company in the country. And uh, it was working among a number what of clients. What year was clients. this? This was in the 60s, uh, 67, wow. 68, 69, cool. uh-huh. uh, 70, because I continued to work there summers after I started college. And, you know, at the time they were working with X's and Zeros, you know, uh, <laughs> and Fortran uh, and, you know, with IBM computers. But we used it for paste up, layout, and design. Uh, in a general sense. That sounds tedious. <laughs> it was. It was a very tedious job. Anyway, Not like the drag and drop uh, of today. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, and, and you had, so I learned early on that if you wanted to be really successful, A, you needed to be a programmer, and B, because I begged for a raise, you know, and I deserved it, uh, especially after yeah. they had made me their uh, production manager after I had worked there part-time for several years. Because I noticed that, you know, I said, you know, I'm a production manager and the illustrators here in the company, you know, uh, are making $20, $25 an hour, which back in the 60s was like a lot to me. I was working at minimum wage. And uh, I said, it doesn't seem appropriate. You know, I was begging for a raise. I was saving money for college. You were standing up for yourself. And and they wouldn't wouldn't give me a raise. And then I finally said, okay, well, I'm accepting my, 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 senatorial scholarship to the U of I. I didn't want to go to the Art Institute because I didn't like the faculty that I would have to work with at that mm. point in time. I would go in the drop of a hat now. But mm-hmm. the the women had anyway, I won't go into the dark side of the Art Institute at that time if you were a woman. <laughs> <laughs> but so I went I ended up going to U of I. And when I told my boss at GNS Designs that I was leaving you know, for college, and I gave them proper notice a month. And uh, then they offered me a raise, but not until the week before I was ready to go to school. First, they just tried to talk me out of it. You know, I said, oh, the best way, you know, to be successful as an artist is to learn on the job. That's what you're doing. That's what you get here. You've got great clients. And I did at Honda Motorcycle Company, Pelwaukee Airport, the Millionaire's Club, Truckers, you know, blah, blah. The list was long. And uh, so cool. finally, the week before I'm ready to go to school, and I've got the dorm room set up, I've decided that I'm going to be poor. It's okay. I can live like that. <laughs> <laughs> then they offered me 50 grand a year. So what'd you do? Did you go to school or turn them down? I went or? to school. If people don't value you, and then suddenly they do, that devaluing process, you don't trust them. And, and why? You know. So right. I was past the point you know, where I wanted to accept anything to do yeah. at that company. And it wasn't my boss, Didi. It was her husband, who was like an ex-football yeah. star. So, mm. you know, go figure. So what did you study in college that led you to being so in the 3D So I started off in world. graphics. And, okay, uh, and yeah. that was interesting because at the University of Illinois, that was when John Cage was actually the visiting artist for, he had an endowed chair at the music department. And it was the year when the university would regularly shut down, you know, because of the riots, mm. Vietnam protests, et, et cetera, et cetera. And 
I had already been working as a graphic designer, and my graphic design teacher, Doyle Moore, who I totally respected and liked, uh, he caught on to that right away. You know, we'd get an assignment like, okay, do, do a graphic for the letter M so it sounds like the way it looks. And, you know, I could whip that out, nothing flat. It was boring. So then I would substitute, you know, like uh, what was a piece of conceptual art, you know, like in other words, how, how to fly an airplane over campus writing M's <laughs> <You know? laughs> in polyurethane foam, which would then drop to the ground and bounce across the, the cornfield landscape, you know, things like that, <laughs> things like that. And 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 I, and I would with my proposal, you know, I'd have affidavits attached by the farmer who was willing to lend his property, and the polyester foam, you know, uh, manufacturer who was willing to give it a shot, you know, like the, the the guy running the airplane who thought it was just such a cool, stupid idea that he was willing to do it. <laughs> you know, up until the chemist, up until the chemist told us that. Uh, the polyurethane foam, because of its weight and how the length of time it would take to drop from the airplane to the ground, wouldn't harden fast enough, and it would just come down as a big plop. <laughs> you know? So I would, I got really good at at failed conceptual art before conceptual art was an issue. Assignments, but Doyle loved it so much, he gave me a key to the dark room, and he said, "Just use anything in there you want." <laughs> nice. Yeah, which included a complete stock of paper, thousands of sheets. So I, so I, you know. Oh well, I'd after be... drawing on the back of teaching memos with a brown crayon, must have been like heaven, right? <laughs> oh my gosh, it was wonderful. I just went through so much photo paper; it was unbelievable. And so you went I from started... graphic design to conceptual art, and then what? Well, I mean, it was just substitute for assignments. They were radical days. So I was working yeah. for the school paper. I did a little bit of editorial cartooning and, and made friends with people that were doing mixed media because, like, the ah. university was shut down. So I'd either spend time playing chess with John Cage when that happened, or I'd get together with some of the graduate students who were working in kind of the advanced computer programming areas on campus. You know, ah, nearby. there's that programming again. Yeah, U of I had HAL, you know, the, 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 the computer that, that was like intrinsic to uh, military operations. It was one of the first, you know, really complex computer mm. systems. And, you know, I didn't know any of that stuff, but, you know, a couple of my friends were working on it. And I would get involved in doing performances with them where I did the photography and darkroom stuff. And we'd mm-hmm. set up environments, you know, like, like, uh, Oh, like one of my favorite, it was like mini geodesic domes and then rings of projectors on the outside. So you could project on the geodesic domes and have it be like kind of timed sequence, almost like animation, but not, you know, hooked up to uh, sound systems that would be reactive to, you know, where people were in the space. And then we'd fill it with dry ice and project on the clouds of smoke that came from it and stuff like that, which was a big hit. Big hit with campus. So I got to do a lot of things that, that were nothing to do with my art classes. <laughs> and I got straight A's and I loved it. It was great. So I learned at U of I in those radical periods, you know, to do both traditional and non-traditional things, to, to do conventional things, you know, like get my homework in on time, do my projects, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And at the same right. time, make friends, develop a community. And that's important. 
I wish it I is. still had that community. Unfortunately, a lot of those people are dead now. Otherwise, mm. they would be my good, good, good buddies. You have well, to you know, lucky. college is a special time. It's an amazing time to meet new people because you're open and receptive to yeah. meeting new people. It's expected and you're in an environment for it, right? Right. So I switched. I went from there to Bradley University, which was right. a much, much, you know, smaller private university. And they were experimenting with an open studio program. So I had some academic classes, but, you know, I just made the art I wanted. If you went to the right workshops the first week of school, you could learn whatever techniques were necessary to operate equipment safely, like in ceramics, like you wanted to fire raku or electric or, you know, kills of different kinds. Uh-huh. You knew gas kills. You knew how to build them. You knew how to do it. You knew how to throw your clay. You knew how to use And the then it was open. Without having your arms cut off. Yeah. So all the studios were open. Oh, that's and, very innovative. So I was, yeah, I was often the only one on the second floor in the building because I really liked making things. Yeah. And I was often the only one in the ceramic studio, again, because I liked making things. Other students would show up the last minute right before midterms and finals and do stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with rare exception, they did find that this, the system worked for some people that were artists anyway. But it didn't, didn't, didn't work for others who really were there just for socialization. And they were very good at their socialization. Yeah, well, I think, you know, having a habit around productivity is very important. Absolutely. And you have to be curious about it. You really, you really have to have things that you want to try. Yeah. And then, and then I, went, I went to school at uh, graduate school at the Maryland Institute. Which mm-hmm. was a good choice because Grace Hardigan actually won the Teacher of the Year Award from the College Art Association that I graduated with my MFA with her as my chair. Cool. And that was also a great program because it was independent study. You had to take a couple art history classes, which I did with Emmanuel Navarretta, who was a chain smoker and, and also you know, talked, uh, oh, it was Leo Wittgenstein, you know, it's like, you are where you eat, the polemics of of discourse and discussion. And while I was there, I had part-time jobs. I I worked part-time at the Baltimore Museum, making posters or working as a preparator. I worked part-time in the art supply store. I worked part-time as Babe Shapiro and sometimes Sal Scarpetta's teaching assistant. <laughs> so you had like three part-time jobs. No, I had another one. I worked Four. ultimately <laughs> I worked part-time as the gallery director at the school. But once That's some great they, experience. Well, they found out, you know, anyway, every every part-time I worked part-time in the AV department. Uh-huh. And I got my boss the campus award for 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 you know, material that he didn't, you know, he provided me information, I prepared the material. Mm. <laughs> Typical woman thing. <sighs> so it was a great experience. I met, I met Joseph Boyce, and the one time he came to the United States, you know, he visited my studio, went to dinner with him, because he was, you know, Grace pulled him over. And, you know, she had her friends, Elaine de Kooning came there. Who's this oh. gentleman? 
Joseph Boyce, B-E-U-Y-S. Look him up. He's one of the most famous artists in Europe. Okay. I will. Yeah. And Grace, you know, as the only woman who was part of the triumph of American abstract expressionism in the 50s, she rubbed shoulders with uh, Bill de Kooning and Jackson Pollock and mm. Peggy Guggenheim. And, you know, she wow. was part of that circle. And when you look at that book, Triumph of American Art in the 50s or whatever it's called, she's the only woman, I think, mm. in the picture, even though, you know, Mrs. Pollock became better known later and was later recognized as having preceded her husband in his experiments, blah, blah, blah. At that right. time, she wasn't. There's a number of other women kind of who emerged more in the late 50s, early in the mid-60s. If I recall the movie for Jackson mm. Pollock, it was a woman that really brought him to prominence. Thank Well, Elaine de Kooning, his wife, was the one. Yeah. But yeah. Peggy Guggenheim, his patroness, was, was, was largely responsible. Exactly. And then the, the Time Life magazine thing. So, you know, I'd ended up in drawing and painting back at Bradley because I discovered that I, you know, being a graphic design major didn't make sense there because I already knew how to do what they had to teach. Right. So I switched and I just said, oh, okay, well, I'll go with drawing and painting and, you know, learn how to do that better. It's interesting because, Jen, so, you So I went to graduate school all over the drawing place. and painting with Elaine de Kooning. Wow. Made friends with like Jack Torkoff, who was the department chair at Yale. Hmm. He liked my work, I liked his, and then he was one of the first guest artists in residence I invited to Cal State, you know, when I started my job there right out of graduate school. Oh, you went right back into academia? I did. I did that I did. too. Grace <laughs> that told me sometimes. not to, but I did. Yeah. So there's my early, early history. Yeah, But the history in academia, which is nearly 50 years long, oh my gosh, it kind of, my schooling, as strange as it was, you know, really allowed me to do what I wanted to do. I was an agent of change. You know, I represented the most traditional aspects of the program, mm -hmm. ultimately, in figure drawing and uh, figure painting, which is found, figure drawing remained a foundation requirement, you know, for all yep. majors. Yeah. And at the same time, I was the one early on, I brought in hundreds of guest artists, lecturers, speakers, and was a producer before the art world had a name for being a producer, the theater world did, for oh, site-specific works, collaborative ventures, NEA grants, all kinds of, you know, just all kinds of experimental things. Yeah, I kind of met you towards the end of that and um you had a show at our at our school and um you know i just was fascinated by you were doing some work at that point with like virtual sculpting kind of like as i recall oh, you were yeah. telling I me mean, ultimately you know like the last 12 say years of my career maybe more mhm mm you know, I'd kind of kept my hand in following what was happening in the computer world, but I mm -hmm. had majors drawing and painting, graphic design, illustration, ceramics. We, you know, we had a foundry. A lot of my students in the technical uh, arts, and now I think of technical arts, including graphic design and illustration, ended up 
working in the movie industry. Some of them worked for Steven right. Spielberg. Some of my most uh, successful graduate students, as far as what the world deems to be success, you know, or mm. like David Lowry became like the lead storyboard artist for Steven Spielberg for every single Spider-Man movie that was made. And then he to become a, a movie producer, you know, Pete wow. Dinosaur, that was his. He did Jurassic Park. You know, he's probably huh. one of my, my most well-known protégés. But other, other protégés from that period, like Susan Perry, ended up working for different museums and is now going to be retiring as a museum director this next mm. month. Uh, Leanne Garrison became department chair at University of Milwaukee. Pete Stake became department chair in New York, I think, University it was. And, you know, I mean, my graduates really changed the world. Amazing. And I loved working with them. I loved yeah. working with them. And I especially loved the collaborative classes. So yeah. when I started, I had all along been kind of used doing computer work side by side with my drawing and painting stuff. Uh-huh. But it wasn't shown. You know, it was stuff I was doing at home extra on the side. And when I got more serious about it, I started learning on my own how to use Photoshop, you know, and and how to make my own texture painting tools. This is before they had plugins for some of the things that Mm -hmm. I did. You know, I had designed texture painting tools for fire, for, you know, desert landscapes of different kinds and you know, I did mm-hmm. highly, highly meticulous paintings. People, some of my friends wouldn't let me call them paintings. They said they're photographs. I said, you don't understand. They said, that's a photograph. Even people in the <laughs> field were telling me that I lied about what I did. And I said, hey, <laughs> you know, excuse me. I don't appreciate you undermining my career like that with people that I'm just meeting because like, I made paintbrushes of my own using a rubber stamp tool, excuse me. So it didn't occur to me at the time that that was like really breaking news or anything. I was just using it to make make things, you know. Yeah, on, you know, You're being people innovative. Working, people working for major companies, of course, any artist working with these things would, would want to develop such things too, you know. And so there were other people that, that worked for corporations you know, not for universities, corporations, you know, that really got the patents and the copyrights and all the kind of things. Well, Jen, you're like, you're like the mother of necessity. You know, you wanted to do something and you made it happen. Yeah, but on a very low level, it's not like I became famous with it or anything. My idea of of being famous is a very old fashioned term, which is to be really good at what you do. And I was working for a large Mm. multinational university. I mean, we have more international exchange programs with China than any other campus in the country. Our graphic design program was ranked third U.S. News and World Report many times. Wow. Although the art department didn't have the same ranking, you know, the graphics department Mm -hmm. did. I think all of my graduate students got jobs in the arts, which I thought was great. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the measures of success in academia. academia. But, but you do the same <laughs> things that all people in academia that want to keep their jobs and keep tenure do. You have to provide opportunities for new kinds of collaboration while protecting the things that are essential 
for training, a skill-based making, you know. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. a visiting artist coming in and go, oh my gosh, you guys still make things here. While their graduate students are like saving money to buy toasters to make an installation. Duh. <laughs> you know, yeah, you can think, you can be conceptual, you can think, you can buy, and you can repurpose. But it's not always the same, you know, as being able just to make something for yourself. Yeah. Let's talk about that, making something. That actually transitions really well into product. And I think in this commercial-based society that we're seeing more and more that in order to be financially successful as an artist, to pay your bills, you know, you have to have a product that you can sell. And of course, this is really trending right now online with all these print-on-demand. You know, have you seen these new websites where you can upload your designs and have them printed on everything from like a t-shirt to a chocolate bar, right? Oh my gosh, you can go to your local public library and and just take like a a short workshop and and be printing keychains and I mean yeah. 3D uh 3D printing is like a real big deal. It's like Oh yeah. When I transitioned into being able to show internationally with the computer world, it was because of Stephen Skolney and his his compatriot, Michael Pruitt, uh, who were both in the graduate program at, at Caltech. I was only at the point where I was doing gigantic photorealistic, you know, fire paintings using my own my own rubber stamp designs that nobody that looked at the paintings mm-hmm. understood or cared. You know, I said, Oh, look at this, fire, it looks real. And <laughs> you know, so I was getting free printing from Jack Dugan at Dugan Ateliers in Santa Monica, thanks to him, you know, because he goes, wow, he says, I'm doing so many commercial artists in my studio. It'd be wonderful to work with you if you give me feedback on surface coatings, you know, because at that time, computer inks were water-soluble. So if you splashed a print, you know, it would bleed. Which you know, yeah. was not like cool. they weren't archival you pigment posters, based yet. posters for the outside of buildings, you know, which are common today. Mm-hmm. You can buy posters blocks long. You have your digital images printed on anything. But Jack actually was the one that, that coined the phrase jiglet printing. And he was actually the mm. one that got the patent for surface coating. He himself is an artist. Mm. And, and he was teaching at Santa Monica City College for a long time. But he ran an atelier out of a ramshackle kind of factory space there in Santa Monica together with a group of other artists who rented space there. I think yeah. the thing about creativity is that you can align yourself with other people who want to try things that haven't been done before if you choose. Some of them may be out to make make money or get a product from it but my product work was people i worked with students mm. they were my products it wasn't things that i was making i love that so it was like and that was very important because at one point i decided that yeah i love teaching i'm good at this and i and i like it you know it's very different than working in the commercial art world you know because the definition of success in the commercial art world at that time didn't involve teamwork. It was like Bill Gates who started changing that. My student, I got to mm-hmm. meet him at a private party for like some digital pioneers that I, like, I couldn't believe I got invited. Mm-hmm. There was a thousand people there at some conference room in, in LA. And I go, okay, students, I'm going to get to meet Bill Gates. <gasps> they go, what? I said, no, I don't know him. 
but he's going to be there as the guest of honor. And, and so I'll just go up and ask him the questions that you want me to. So <laughs> nice. So I had everybody, you know, form little groups and decide what questions. And of course, the most important question was like, what do I need to do to, 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 to get a job with you, you know, or with anybody? Well, I love that you had the students write some questions rather than just of being course. like. So I asked Bill, Bill Gates, I said, you know, I've come armed with questions that my students put together. And uh, I promised, I'd promised that you'd give them answers. Do you mind if I take 10 minutes of your time, you know, because he's networking with people who want to make millions. Yeah. Know? And uh, you know, number one was teamwork. Duh. Teamwork. Hmm. And that was a new concept in American business at that time. Even having teams that would shift from working on one thing to teams where the more creative types were allowed to go from team to team and do things. Oh. A lot of times in the past, it was the producer that would connect the different specialists on a project in order to create the dynamic final product. You know, it's like one of my friends, Claudia Dirknat, was like... Uh, now deceased. No, she was a good soul. Mm. Pioneer in the digital mm. world. She worked mm -hmm. as a producer for Disney and other companies. Mm. And she said, yeah, a good producer gets in there and does helps different groups of people communicate and make sure that they know what one another are doing and that the one aspect of the project gets delivered on time and to the right people. And you know, this set up the connections between different groups, essentially. And if you do your job right, you know, nobody gives you any credit whatsoever for it. So I think more than <laughs> once, you know, she was fired from a project, from, from a movie, because, oh, the director would call her in and say, you know, you know, we're, we're way below budget. And I don't see what, you know, the, what you're doing is really essential to the film. So we're going to, we have to let you go. I mean, in whatever words. And then two weeks later, when their, their production costs skyrocketed, you know, to the tune of $100,000 more per day, they realized that she wow. had been doing something and they wanted her back. <laughs> you know? So interesting. This is, this so the producers. Anybody who really works well as a, yeah. as a director for a company or uh -huh. a producer for a company, they get people... Right working as a team, and they know how to do it. And that team delivers. It's not the individual. So here, That is fascinating. It is fascinating. So when, when you know, so anyway, so there I am at, at, at a SIGGRAPH conference, much to my surprise, you know, <laughs> getting Epson to print one of my more recent, you know, paintings for free, uh -huh. large format printer. This is when large format printers were first introduced to the public. Yeah. You could go to the workshop at SIGGRAPH, Special Interest Group in Computer Graphics. and, and Yeah, uh, I think they, that's maybe yeah, where I met you. Yeah, and they would do stuff. And so there I am rolling up my giant six-by-six-foot digital print, and there's this pair of size 12 or 14 feet that kind of come up next to me and say, looking down at my fire painting, goes, that's hot. And so I look up and I look up and I look up and I look up and this is guy's almost seven feet tall, you know. And and I Obviously said, not me. And I and I, that was and, short. I just, and I just pause and I go, Thanks. What do you do? 
And uh, he says, oh, it's in the next room. I said, which next room? He said, right around the corner. I said, well, show me. So <laughs> he showed me, and it was the, the Caltech workbench they had on display there that year. And he mm. and Michael Pruitt had designed the surface drawing software that was, at that time, very experimental. Peter Schroeder was their, their mentor there at the school. And uh, uh, I put on a cyber glove, a pair of crystallized goggles, and started drawing yeah. in midair over the, over the workbench. And, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like dreams come true since childhood. And, right. You know, moving, waving your hands through space and having images form underneath it. And I said, I could play with this all day. I could play with this for months, years. And uh, Steve says, well, come on up to the lab. You can. <laughs> and he got, nice. he arranged, he arranged for me to have a key to the lab. And I went up and played with this program. So that's how I got into that end of things, you know, collaboration, teamwork. I didn't, I didn't want to be paid. I didn't ask to be paid. It was just fun, pushing pushing right. boundaries with people, networking, going to conferences, meeting people. Yeah, you well, said several times like meeting people, meet people because you can invite them in, and then you get to mm -hmm. meet people because you get people, students coming in from all over the world, and mm -hmm. you know it's like you get thirty thousand students on campus, eight thousand faculty plus staff, ten, you know, you have fifty thousand people like. You know, all, and most of them young, you know, who are just yeah. there to kind of mingle. <laughs> you know, yeah, they keep you young. They keep you fresh because they bring new ideas, and they're so young. So this idea of product, you know, I'm, I'm, you can tell from the way I'm talking. I'm trying to kind of put the slam on the idea that you should train people technically to in a skill-based media that produces a product designed for a particular audience where you have, you know, interviewed that audience or in some way surveyed them so you know what they want, what their biases and dislikes are, so that you know how to provide them an identity through the product that they want, you know, mm -hmm. all of which are, are kind of catchphrases in, in running a successful design business of any kind. It's like when you're finished with the product, it's not yours. It belongs to your client. Your client is God. Your client is the one whose identity has been like kind of recreated, you know, in entombed this new, in this new form. The only thing you have to be careful of is, and I don't care what you know, especially in drawing, is that any job you present, and this is a truism, whether it's a mural design or like an advertising or a logo. Make some glaring mistake because your client is always going to look at it, find something to correct at the last minute. So make it something easy to fix so that they feel they've had the last say. And, and if you don't arrange to have that, that thing in there, they will have you change your, your focal point. And that's the most work <laughs> of all. Jen, that is brilliant. I love that. It is true. Every time you make a piece for a client in graphic design, they're going to change something. I never heard anybody say that before. That is brilliant and hilarious. <laughs> well, I it's kind you. of like at, at my meeting with, with like the Watercolor Guild the other day. There's yeah. a little chapter here. They're talking about sketchbooks. Everybody had to bring their sketchbook. And, and uh, people, a lot of them, the shy newcomers had the smallest sketchbooks you could buy. You know, those black covered yeah. ones you could stick in your. Yeah. And so at one point, as they're, they're kind of fumbling over like, why? You know, they only have three drawings in there since like last month. 
and and how scary it is. I go, hey, look, you have the perfect sketchbook. You know, you guys, they happen to be on plein air, love a bees. And I said, you have the perfect sketchbook. Get two. Make sure you put one in each pocket in your jeans. So when you go to hiking and you slip on the rocks, so you can skate down without bruising your butt. I mean, this is real. This is practical. This is practical. (laughs) Oh, boy. I love that idea of adding an error or mistake to a client piece that's glaringly obvious so that they'll change that and leave your design alone. You have to be very tricky about that because if you did your homework right, that focal point really is what the client wants and what they ask for. It's just that they're sometimes shocked when they see it. And and they don't feel that they've possessed it because how it's been, you know, reconstituted. And I think our directors Or if your today, work is you know, really innovative, they might feel that it's too edgy. I've heard that before, you know, particularly in rural regions where they, they want to stand out, but not too much. Yeah. So actually, that, that brings us to presentation. We should talk about presenting your work. You know, you've had these giant, giant six foot by six foot pieces, as you were saying, and presenting to clients. Is there any great tips or tricks besides the one that you just gave us about a glaring well, error? You know, it's really interesting. Present- in, in the fine art world, you know, I, I, re- I was represented by Ed Lau at Space Gallery. And, and I did highly detailed pencil renderings. And I, and I worked with raw pigments, too. And it was mm. like very, very detailed. You know, the amount of time that I spent on a piece of was less than, I mean, in graphic design, you get paid by the hour and, uh, or you get paid by the product. In the fine art world in general, you're paid by size or scale and reputation. Mm. And the amount mm-hmm. of time I spent on those pieces, I knew that, that it was not profitable. But I was interested in sharp focus drawing because it provided a meditation space for me. And uh, mm. I could just watch my hand at work and get lost in a meditational space that was kind of like more a Zen state of mind, state of being. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people like to make art because they like that meditative frame of mind. And then an image is just kind of appearing like the magic in state. front of you in some ways. Yeah. You know, Ed Reinhardt was like probably, you know, one of the great gurus on the philosophy of time has no meaning. <laughs> I don't think he used that phrase. He wasn't famous for that. This is really trending right now. But the, the idea of flow state. Talking about nothing. The dialectic hmm. of talking about the non-material aspect mm-hmm. of being an artist while you're making the art. That was important to him. And if you get through his rhetoric, it was very interesting at a time when people were commodifying art. Mm. Very briefly, you know, I'd, I'd known Andy Warhol. I, one of the shows that I helped as a comparator oh. was like an early show of his. So I got to go to some of his parties in Baltimore. Huh. He'd invited cool. me to work in the factory because he said I had a head on my shoulders, but I really didn't want to be that friggin' stoned. I figured I'd die within a year if I went to work in the factory. But I did go to some of his parties. And Madame Devine, who was one of his gay friends in Baltimore, you know, used to sell me the dresses from her shop that I wore to the museum openings because I couldn't afford Mm. to buy things like that. Anyway, 
people like Warhol were hated by the abstract expressionists. I mean, you're making a dollar sign and then making money from that. You're you're like putting out graphic illustrations of products and you're selling them in the fine art world. I mean, oh my gosh. Heresy. You know, heavens to, yeah. I mean, pop art was all about the commodification of the commercial as a substitute for the, the natural landscape that used to exist outside of us. People had, had rejected the natural landscape because it had, had, you know, been used ultimately, you know, for, I digress, but <laughs> let me just go back because I could really go off on a riff on that. <laughs> Post-Cold War Europe, the birth of, of, of surrealism, you know, like the undermining of the Nazi regime. The idea of commodifying the peasant world. Oh, there's class, a lot of you know, threads. Blah, blah. There's a, a lot, lot of threads, threads to tug on there. Yeah, there yeah, really I mean, are. <laughs> but anyway, so you have these very commercial things. But, but, you know, like how to yeah. sell a product is pretty well known. You define your audience. You get to know who they are. Uh, you look at, the tr- at, at their trends, what they want, want, what they don't want. You do that as fast as possible. Actually, these days, I mean, Archie Boston, who worked at Cal State Long Beach, was great. He was black. And and he would teach his students to not look for the stereotypes in the culture, but he said, find an underserved community, you know, right. and 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 start working with them. What are their needs? What are their what is their heritage? What is their uh aesthetic background? Mm-hmm. What is their life like? And rebuild an independent identity for them. I think you summed it up really well there. And right now, with the way there's so much out there, it's really about niching down. And and it has been about that, too, for a long time. I mean, I'm really interested. You know, the CAA conference coming up is actually a prediction of all the things that were discussed way back in 2010 and even before that in the year 2000. So you've had 20 years of the growth of underserved third world communities some of really, which aren't so much third world, they're just <laughs> divisions of the American city. But as far as the history of art and who wrote about it and who's included and who's not and where the emphasis was and how do you rewrite history from a different point of view, from a non-Eurocentric mm. point of view. So a lot of the, the new products, new commodities you know, are coming out because of that. China is mm-hmm. now the center of, of the art world. In India, you mm. have people who are coming up with the new products that they're, sometimes you get altruistic multi-billionaires who are giving away you know, their products in order to help villages and, and mm. the common people, you know, like the, the clean water systems being given away in, in, in India. You know, mm. I mean, wow. Uh, I'd like to see yeah. more entrepreneurs like that as opposed to the whole Trump thing. But let's not go into the Trump thing. Yeah, we won't go there. We won't go there. <laughs> anyway, that actually brings us to education. Commodity, commodity and success. Education is important. It's not seen as a commodity. And what people who want to make money as artists don't necessarily go to the university for that. They should be able to find that and be advised properly when they do, which means taking a mix of business and marketing classes together with your art classes. But few choose oh, to yeah. do that. Few choose to do that. I find it very frustrating that the academic curriculum doesn't involve more business and marketing and sales techniques. But 
I think educating your audience. So students do go to school to learn their craft. And they if if you're really into the arts, a lot of times you, like you, you learn it because you love it, you know? And that's not really maybe the hard part. I think the harder part is sharing what you've learned with your audience, communicating that through story and, and educating your audience, especially now that we have this overwhelm, this glut, this huge, massive thing that we call the internet. People are just overwhelmed all the time. So how do you communicate what you're doing to people effectively, efficiently? You know, what do you think about that type of thing? This overwhelm well, that we have. It's really it. interesting because uh, you were wanting to talk about object commodity marketing sales. You know, looking back at that in my own life, the, the most I ever made from a work of art was a work of art that was invisible and I was paid ten thousand dollars for it. What? Yeah. It was invisible? You know, so <laughs> I mean that kind of fit in with my general idea that art is about being in existence in a way. <laughs> so how did you talk separate, them into this? That's a whole separate story in itself. Well, well but, now you got me start, curious. And it's like replication versus uniqueness, you know, commodity okay. versus uh, isness. I mean, all these different things, you know. So I, I guess once How I do you communicate and my central, my central, what I did was kind of put people together, provide them skills, and give them as much one-on-one -on -one feedback as possible on helping define their own rules for success. And I, th mm. I think I did that pretty well. You know, judging from the variety of different careers my students have had and, and where they went, everything mm. from being the director. And what were for, your rules for success? Well, helping students define those for themselves. Right. They weren't my rules for success. My rules for success were very different than their rules for success. It's important to But it's important them. to define those, huh? Well, yes. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of a lot of students want to develop viable career paths. You know, it's intellectually mm -hmm. challenging, requires tools for continuing growth. You know, it means establishing a support group. It, mm. You know, it means aligning yourself, you know, in, in most cases for artists, aligning yourself with a, a staff of writers and gallerists and other artists who share uh, your biases visually. Now, some mm. some artists don't don't actually form their support group. It's the gallery that that ends up providing the support group that they. I go, oh my gosh, I didn't know so and so did work that looks like this. And look at this. I mean, oh my gosh, some galleries, you know, are really very good at putting groups of artists together who became, you know, who had a high level of solidarity. Having a sense of agency, intellectual and academic yeah. freedom, all that kind of thing. So cultural agency is kind of like a new, relatively new buzzword in preparing students for uh, success. Cultural agency. What does cultural agency mean? I think it means like having students understand where their own biases have come from. And where are the biases of people from other cultures, where those come from? And then being able to use and negotiate that as a tool in building their pathway to success. 
Hmm. Uh, these days, in the art and commodities world, cultural production, cultural agency is very, very important. I mean, this was, you know, coming out of Cuba, for instance, all the Cuban artists and all the different international laws that were changed, like through, oh gosh, Jimmy Carter, through uh, President Clinton, through Reagan, up through to today, all the commodities, barter, and exchange regulations that were imposed imposed on Cuba in order for its economic sanctions to be, uh, you know, in order to squash that country's ability to nuke the United States, basically cutting off trade. And then the role of the art world, Rockefeller, other museums, you know, we couldn't even have like a show of, of Cuban art in this mm. country like that was a retrospective because of mm-hmm. the regulations that even, although constantly challenged by people in the art world, you know, like what's intellectual idea, what is a free exchange of ideas, when can you say that can't be traded? You know, I mean, Canada had to be the one to promote that show. Hmm. I mean, I, I think that the whole Cuban art scene and how it became internationalized is an excellent if you go back and study the history of import-exports that were allowed, disallowed, commodity-based sales that were allowed, disallowed, you know, anything sold outside the United States that was coming from Cuba, as far as artwork was concerned, the profits were supposed to be turned over to American corporations or individuals whose property had been taken, you know, during the uh, communist overthrow of Cuba. <laughs> Didn't you know? Hmm. You know, you can get hmm. artwork at an international level is used by countries in ways that artists don't study in school. And there's very few people in the world of art history that look at economic regulations in association with different countries to see how the countries have used that to try to control creative growth that moves too quickly or to squash Mm. creative growth that is dangerous idealistically Mm. to what's being promoted, whether it is communism or fascism or Mm -hmm. the U.S., what do we call ourselves? It's not really a democracy. It's a what? (laughs) Pollock was used internationally in ways that the American public never really fully grasped until long after his death. I mean, but if you go back and read the headlines in Australia, when they first showed blue poles, you will see that Pollock was picked up on by the nation at the federal level as a great artist to to show overseas because the idiosyncratic unpredictability of action in his work added to the idea that we could or could not push the button at any time. Pollock was the perfect painter to exploit during the Cold War, but the press we got in other countries was not the same as the press we got here. Another example of cultural agency. Interesting. I'd love to read a book on that topic. I'd love to read an art history book I don't think it's been written about... yet, cultural agency. <laughs> well, but Jen, come on. Talk, it sounds like some you... Some of the people coming to the CAA convention in Chicago 
this coming February may be talking about those very things. Interesting. Interesting, because the topic has come to such fruition that most of the, the lectures and seminars seem to be directed to rewriting history from a third world hmm. that used to be considered a third world perspective. Now, how you can call China like even a third world when it's the biggest country on the fucking planet, that's, that's a separate issue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously. Yeah. I mean, we're not talking right, about right. Botswana here. Botswana, now there's, right. there's a democracy. It's very tiny. <laughs> no, nobody talks about it. That might be a third world. I don't know. It's been my goal with all these interviews, all the research I've been doing, my whole academic career, to figure out how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets, the four top secrets to making money with your art. And now I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right, I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out, no numbers, and get your free report on how to make money with your art. I got to back up to your most expensive piece for just a second. You said the most oh. expensive piece you ever sold was $10,000 and it was invisible. And I got to know, how did you sell it? Like, what did you sell if it was invisible? Uh, Come on, well, tell me the story. I got to hear. Well, <laughs> you know, I was trying to sell my house on Cherry Avenue in Long Beach. Okay. And it had been on the market for more than a year. And uh, finally, a buyer showed up who really liked it. You know, I mean, there was a lot. I didn't I wanted to break even on the sale at that point. I didn't care. Uh -huh. You know, I didn't want to lose money. And I was tired at that point of my whole life. And this has been true. I was moved into the, the poorest place in the neighborhood. As a graduate student, I was like constantly repairing, you know, lofts and trying to. Right. And, and you learn after a while to get a key fee. And I thought, oh my God, I'm not going to have my first house and not get a key fee. But there's no such thing as an ownership of homes. And, and so I asked, I asked, I finally told my real estate agent, why is it that they don't want to pay full price? They can afford it, they've got the money. It's a really good price. It's a rock bottom price. It, it it doesn't even give me any earnings on all the the new bathrooms, yeah. the floors, the blah blah. And I went through the list. And she says, "Well, the truth is, they couldn't afford to pay taxes on it." And I said, "Oh, well, if that's the case, why don't they buy one of my artworks? Because what matters to me is the cash." <laughs> and uh -huh. you know. Now cash out because I don't want to lose money on this property. It's ridiculous. And uh, I said, why don't they buy one of my works of art, you know, for the difference in, in, in price that we're talking about? And they said, well, they're not really interested in artwork. 
He said, it's not your, your artwork per se. It's just any artwork. And I said, well, let's just write a contract for a piece of invisible artwork. They can buy that. <laughs> and my real estate agent goes, what? <laughs> you, you can do that? I said, all it takes to sell something is a contract. I write a contract. I sign it. They sign it. Date it. It's witnessed. It's a legal document. Right. And so that's it. I drew up a contract for a piece of invisible artwork, uh, which they later framed and put in their house. And (laughs) (laughs) despite the fact that they didn't didn't necessarily want to show art, they didn't necessarily want art on their walls. Yeah. So they could have gotten a real piece of art from you, but instead, that's the most bizarre story. But you know what? That leads us to our next two topics, which are automation and amplification and then we'll head right into contracts because that story just leads us to contracts. I love your bit of advice about how do you communicate with your audience? You know, you were talking about you just backed up a, recently because you had some health issues and you kind of pulled things down and now you're coming back and you're you're getting bigger and you're doing this show and that show and how do you organize all that? Do you have any tips and tricks for people? Maybe tips and tricks that aren't techie, in fact, they could even be. Like, what about things for people that don't necessarily, you know what I mean? At this point in my life, okay, I currently don't have access to a high-tech lab. And if I were to pick up what I was doing with my 5D artwork, I would need to Mm -hmm. reestablish a connection with a 5D lab. Somebody also a a group of scientists that are interested in pursuing that form of computational. And there isn't one in Chicago. Uh Alan Sander, for a while, had run a holographic museum, and she's going to be speaking uh, with the new caucus uh, for the arts at the CAA. And I'm going to meet up with her and Janine Fraun, one who had worked with her as a producer, promoter for a long time different roles. But mm-hmm. Chicago doesn't have one. I live in Tower Lakes. It's, it's like Tower Lakes has, two, has 1,300 people in it, okay? And mm-hmm. it's a far-flung, you know, northwestern. It's not even in, in uh, Cook County with Chicago. It's like up towards the Wisconsin border. And, you know, there's rolling hills and beautiful lake and woods. and all It that. sounds lovely. So when I moved here, because I stepped out of the art world. And I would have to go back. I Probably the closest lab to me to reestablish connections with the cutting edge on the computer world would be in Champaign-Urbana, which mm-hmm. I could do if, if I chose to go that path. But the ch- path that I but you're not required to this tiny little locale, which was not too far from where I grew up and where my mother lived before she died, uh, and she was dying when I moved out here and was recovering mm. for myself. I got involved Sorry. with my immediate community. And one of the yeah. reasons I chose this place was because my immediate community really seemed to care about the environment, about endangered species, and mm-hmm. about uh, and shared eco-concerns that have concerned me since I was a child. And my father was a Boy Scout troop leader having kids plant trees up and down the streets in Arlington Heights following the elm Mm -hmm. beetle disaster that had destroyed all the elm trees in, 
I mean, it's wonderful. I can go through Arlington Heights and I can see all the trees my father helped plant. I go, wow, you know, is he known for that? No. Do the people that even live there with those trees know that? No. Do I know that? Yes. You know, I mean, do his Boy Scouts know that? Yes. I found that out when I met some at a local high school reunion. But so again, networking. So I, I got, I decided that because I can't be networking at an international level, I pulled six, I pulled six websites that I had offline. I had uh-huh. one separate website for each one of my classes, and I had one of my own. And I'm also, and I think I'm still listed, although I'm kind of dead filed almost, with some on some of the websites like the one run by Jackie Mori as kind of like a networking uh-huh. group, you know, for some of the artists working on the cutting edge of digital technology. Because she herself was very instrumental as a pioneer in in the digital world. I never got that mm. that epithet put on me, but mm-hmm. I did curate her into shows. I curated shows for digital artists at Cal State, mm-hmm. off campus in LA, at a time when galleries weren't touching people who were doing digital art. You know, mm. so I had a, a website called Digital Eyes, which was like one mm-hmm. of the shows that I I curated, which I think. Is might recently be, have been put back online because it's of interest historically. So how did you manage all that? Well, I never slept. It was part of <laughs> I got cancer, you know. I mean, it's like oh, it's overwork. They replaced me with two and a half, three and a half people when I retired. Oh, geez. Yeah. And now that you're coming yeah, and doing yeah, some so new not, stuff. If I wanted to be a digital artist and be known, I would go back. I would have my own website. I would have, I would up. I would go back and get in touch with professionals that I've been working with that aren't dead, who are in that Mm. field, who themselves are maintaining still a reasonable profile. People like Sue Golliver, Jackie Mori. Yeah. Well, and you said you're going to CAA conference as well. So Chicago, but here, here in, in Tower Lakes for the last, what, since the last say five years or so, I mean, I lose track of time now. I got involved mm. with like the eco activists in my own community, and I joined the Lake Committee. Well, the Lake mm-hmm. Committee people have put Tower Lakes on the map here in Illinois. We won mm-hmm. the biggest grant from the state of Illinois for cleaning up our water in the lakes. We won grants for storm and wastewater management in an area where people don't That's have awesome. water but have, have septic. I mm-hmm. put in a $30,000 rain garden, a shoreline eco-habitat in my backyard. So you've kind of transferred some of your creativity. Grow five to 25 feet deep so that the animals wow. eat them and they will suck up the, the pollution. We're now looking at, and, and other people in the group, Steve, uh, for instance, has like gone out and has established Baygog and some and allied informally. This area had been called the Lakeland Nation, mm. you know, by people that live around here. But Illinois is like very independent, you know, of of government agencies of different kinds. We have no ah. national parks in Illinois. We have state parks. They're underfunded. 
Huh. So this community got started pulling together and drawing in other communities together with increased open communication with some existing, two major existing environmental organizations, uh, Citizens for Conservation and the Barrington Area Conservation Trust, BACP, mm-hmm. and CFC, whose mission, in part, is education and the acquisition of property for the purpose of, you know, eco-habitat management. So all that artwork, if I wanted, and there are yeah. some things that I could do to this garden in my lakefront area to pull into the art scene, because I yeah. know artists who call themselves artists who, in fact, were just environmental gardeners, you know, I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, I could find a way to do that, but do I want to align with that particular group? You know, I haven't decided what kind of group I want to align with. So I'm just getting to know the people that live here first Mm -hmm. in my immediate community and finding that we shared this interest. So I kind of booked into that. And then I booked into some art shows that uh, help with eco awareness with Mm -hmm. that. McHenry Land, McHenry County Land Conservancy. I was in their show, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to bring more public awareness to eco environmental concerns and habitat restoration. And I was just in a show, the Volo Bog, which is an mm. in, which is a national landmark, but their show is no great shakes. You know, I mean, just mm. about any halfway decent photographer and could be in it, although there were professionals as well as amateurs in it. It's like, and I put... No, I love your idea of aligning with with community and with organizations that maybe aren't in the art world, but support your interests. That all love art. Everybody loves art. And then the other thing, of course, that that happens with all of this is I could I could curate eco shows, you know, mm-hmm. I could go that route. I could be a producer, but I'm still trying to meet the artists that actually live here without, and it's live here is Lake County. It is not Chicago. It is not the Chicago art scene, although I met and could easily, you know, become better friends with the president of the Chicago Art Society. And I mm-hmm. met Lee Chin Tan, who teaches art history at the Art Institute, whose work I love, uh, who's from China, and I have met individuals, you know, so. Yeah, so looking around and networking and outreach. And the Collage Society and and the uh, Colored Pencil Society, too. And each one of those groups asked me if I wanted to be president. Typical of any art organization. You know, artists are always looking for somebody else to, to organize the shows, to find mm. the press, to find the venues, to promote. Well, if you want to step people. up, right? Great opportunities. I mean, and if somebody else can do it for you, great. And <laughs> <laughs> you know that. You've been in academia. You yeah, know, but there's yeah, a point in how much I can tackle. I, I have to sleep every day. Yeah. Right, right. I come first. My health comes first. I'm sorry. I can't get, if I go back in to doing all the stuff I did when I was working, which are all things, you know, designed to give you a profile, but we're 
were mostly targeted to benefiting groups of people, not me, myself, personally. I think it's a really good advice that networking and starting in your local community and just looking around you and volunteering is still a valid way of growing a career, even with the internet. Absolutely true. And that hasn't stopped. It's it's just like, I can also the other thing that stops me, although this this can change. Only recently have I been able to fly again without spending mm. a week in bed afterwards. Yeah, I mean, it, to be an international artist, you have to be willing to travel to other places so that when you're meeting somebody face to face in Beijing, or in Copenhagen or in Paris or London, you know, all places mm-hmm. where I've shown my work and more, you know, you're looking at that person face to face, eye to eye, and they might as well be your next door neighbor. Right. Yeah. yeah. So if you can't align yourself or find, you know, things in common with people in your own neighborhood, how the heck do you expect to do it in other people's neighborhoods? Hmm. Now you can I mean, you said to do this without the internet. Well, you do it without the internet. You go places. You talk to people. You go to their lectures. You share. You know, go to their lectures. I like that. I like you that share. idea. Yeah, it's the way I've met some of my most interesting friends and artists and and people is just going to lectures they give and talking to them afterwards. It's always fascinating. Yeah. 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 Hey. Licensing and contracts. I loved what you said earlier about a contract is just a piece of paper that basically is agreement between two people. What types of tips and tricks could you give our audience about licensing and contracts? Or what kinds of contracts have you found to be just totally necessary? Or maybe even what's the simplest contract you could have on hand? Okay, uh, let me think a second. Because it's not always uh, uh, an agreement between two people. When you're talking about success at another level, it's an agreement between perhaps one person and an organization, whether it be a museum or a corporation, mm-hmm. whether it's mm-hmm. a multinational corporation or a local company, you know, and, and they have different levels of agreement. So I'm trying to think of the name of that book. I'm used to just roll off my. No worries. We can always add it down below in the comments. There's got a, we've got a lovely. There's a book. It's uh, the Graphic Artist Guild Handbook of Pricing and Ethical Guidelines. Oh, yeah, I have that one. That one's yeah. classic. And they release it like every year or something? Every Yeah, every year. I, I don't know if they're in their 14th or 15th edition by this time or something. But the Graphic Artists Guild Handbook of Pricing and Ethical Guidelines is very important for people who are dealing with objects and commodities of, of any kind in graphics and illustration mm-hmm. or who are working with drawing and painting or sculpture or any other way that feeds that particular niche of the commercial world. Absolutely important. Yeah. And it really has some great advice on tips, pricing, and so forth. I remember looking through it and thinking, wow, this is so much more money than I would think to charge for this. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, this is for people who, who are dealing with well-known clients, obviously. 
And newbies are always underselling themselves, and women too, women and newbies. Yeah. Uh, the other yeah, we do that. thing that people can read is the California Lawyers for the Arts. I would go to their website oh. and start uh-huh. looking at uh, what publications they might have currently. I think the ones that I have are kind of probably out of date, and especially maybe checking out also. Uh, required reading, you know, for artists interested in this kind of thing are the copyright uh, regulations Mm. for the USA. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. really interesting to to actually read the copyright law of the United States. You can go to it as the U.S. copyright. A little late reading before bedtime. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, they have books and publications and mm-hmm. to know the difference between when you apply for a copyright, what's required, what are the copyright mm-hmm. basics, and also to compare that with uh, patents. There's a difference mm-hmm. between having a copyright and a patent. A lot of oh, people, very much so. A lot of people in the cutting edge of the digital art world, by any other name, some people like prefer computational art, some people prefer other designations for it. But, you know, what most people call digital art, some of the, the, the movers and shakers in that industry are people who are interested in patents. Mm. And the, t- the two industries that supply the most research funding to the PhD programs and the independent labs in the world for coming up, for doing research that will lead to patents are the American Medical Association, AMA, and mm-hmm. the United States military, the defense, <laughs> U.S. military defense program. Right. And yeah. they, you know, they're the ones that put the money into the, the USC's lab, and then the other half came from the entertainment industry. There's the copyright law in the United States, I think is maybe called bit law. <laughs> is an interesting mm. thing, you know, but you can go and get some well, of that stuff. It's very important if you're going to be trying to work with original products yeah, and you're going to start dealing with more than your immediate next door neighbors in writing contracts, yep. that you understand what a contract is mm-hmm. and what the law is in the country in which you're working. Our copyright right. law obviously not the same as copyright law in other countries, and that's a fueling a lot of debate on the internet these days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, a real quick summary of kind of an overview. This is very simplified, but copyright is the protection of the visual aspect of a piece of work. And Last I checked, you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's uh, Life of the Artist plus 75 years, but you really just have to sign it in order to establish copyright. You should sign and date it, really. No, actually, you have to file for a copyright to actually protect your interests. Yeah. And and, and proving that it's yours. And there's another interesting thing. But it's not hard to do. You can do it online. As soon as it's Mm -hmm. published, you've given away your copyright. If you didn't file for copyright before it was published, you gave it away when you let it be published. Well, now you can now, you can register copyright online. In the fine art world, let me like build on this. In the fine art world, most artists are so heavily encouraged to exhibit their work as soon as it's made 
that there's not actually time to file for a copyright on the work before it's published if you want to publish at all. Well, now, I believe there is an option because when I've gone into copyright for the, it's copyright.gov or whatever, it's a .gov site, you do have an option to list whether it is published or unpublished work. And it doesn't really just change the registration, as I recall. It's like $30 to register a copyright, and then they have an option to do collections as well. Yeah, yeah. That's all that's online. True. That's true. But then, for instance, the SIGGRAPH that I was working with, SIGGRAPH uh-huh. asks you to sign waivers for all that stuff. You know, oh, do they? Well, because there's, there's like, if they take an image of your work, it's theirs to use. They, because they're working with uh, uh, major labs, you know, who really mm. are after patents and copyrights on new ends of the process. The thing is, if you're not that well known, nobody cares. You know, you have to mm-hmm. be on the edge of making, making a lot of money for anybody to really care or sue you on it, which leads to the mm-hmm. common public belief we were, that you can use anything. So <laughs> anything that you see is like yours. Uh, you know, that's oh, a it. it's in my mind. Urban it's myth. myth. <laughs> it, yes, the urban myth and the reality. Ooh, yeah. Transferring there and li- transferring and licensing of copyrights is a whole separate thing from fair yeah. use and other limitations. I think the best advice we can offer is get a good lawyer. <laughs> a lawyer <laughs> is worth a good copyright lawyer is worth their weight in gold, aren't they? No, no. First read first read the uh, website. You know, it's like the, the, the lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, and understand the difference. Understand between. Co- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. And finally, on to success and defining success. How do you define success, Jen? How do you set goals and celebrate those goals? And how do you define success? I personally define success has been different at different times in my life, depending on the projects and the people that I was working with. Oh, I like that. It changes throughout life. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't I don't have one definition for success because I've worked I've worked successfully as a designer, as an illustrator, as a producer, as an educator, uh-huh. as a musician, uh-huh. as a painter. Mm. I didn't know you were a musician. Yeah, I play Native American flute. I've done my first recordings recently and I've Got a couple oh. people trying to get me to do a lot more, but I've been digging my heels in on that because cool because of, that's really because neat. Of the tradition I work with, which is Native American Indian flute mm. flute tradition, which you know if somebody wants to learn, you know they can come to my house and I'll teach them for free. Very cool. <laughs> so, is there a formula though that you can use to define success? You were talking to me maybe before the podcast, and you talked a little bit about helping your students define what success was going to look like for them. Is there a formula or a method or how do you, do you know what I mean? Like, how do you well, set yourself you goals? Well, you to sit down and talk to each person individually, and you know them for mm-hmm. more than that hour. You know them over a period of the two to four years that it takes them to finish the program. And, and they like talking mm-hmm. to you enough that they come back and, and you can help them refine their goals as mm-hmm. they shift and learn, as they learn more about what it is they're really doing and what they're good at, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what's, what feels rewarding, 
what doesn't, what things they need to rely on other people to do for them or not. Some of my more entrepreneurial students, like uh, Vladimir Miljenovic, he was a Yugoslavian student. He was trying at first to get into the uh, MFA program, and I sat down and talked with him, and I realized, hey, you don't need this. I said, what you need is a special major. Now, those kinds of people that need special majors are, are really unique. Cause, but for most people, it'll be... Like it'll, a custom-designed yeah, major. Yeah, they design their own program. You know, so, yeah, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> See? So on one end, you know, I'll start with that. The person who really is going to define success for themselves has answers to a lot of questions uh, that you would ask. Mm-hmm. What do you like to make? Who do you like to do it with? What kind of audience do you want? How permanent do you want that audience to be? How long do you want to make that thing or you know that that you're talking about? How many copies are you are you interested in selling? Are you interested mm. in reproductions at all? Mm-hmm. Is it important to you to make one of a kind things? Is it important to you to make original things? Is it important to you to stick with one media? You know, what media is that? What do you need to learn to master that media? What don't you know yet? Who do you know that, that likes doing? Who, what artists do you respect and admire? Uh, what entrepreneurs do you respect and admire? Can you put together a, 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 a list of people that, that you'll invite to your, your first show? <laughs> you know? These I are mean, great questions. I mean, can you, and if you have a client, uh, which are the top 10 clients you'd like to work with? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's like millions of people out there. If you're going to work for somebody else, who do you want to work for? My right. graphic teacher, Doyle Moore, was famous, you know, in my mind, as soon as he told me, he said, oh, you can go to two kinds of schools. You can go to the kind of school where they let you do things for yourself, be the director of the design agency, or you can go, you can do what you're told in class, and then you'll go work for somebody that'll tell you what to do. So that's an important question, too. Do you want to work for yourself? Or do you want to work for somebody else? Do you want to run mm-hmm. your own company or not? How many right. different kinds of art enterprises do you want to run? You know, do you want to have one that's commercial mm. or one that's private? Those are some of the, the standard questions that you can begin asking people. Oh, those are great. Those are you really know, great I mean, questions. How do you go on and on, you know what I mean? Because it's like that's a real dialogue you can have with somebody. Right. Well, we will put some of those down below so that (laughs) you guys in the audience can answer them. Well, Jen, we are closing out. We're coming here to the end. And you've actually already pretty much answered this question, but I always like to ask at the end, are there any books or blogs or podcasts or things that you think everybody should read? And it doesn't even have to be art related. Normally, I ask are there any books you would give somebody as like a gift that you just think oh are so gosh. good? <laughs> what, you know, oh, no, I've I, opened a can of worms. You did. When I retired, first of all, I kept a library in my office because the library couldn't keep up with the acquisitions that were necessary for people to understand uh-huh. what was happening today. And uh, I gave away $10,000 <laughs> worth of books. I had a block, wow. a line of students, a block and a half long, waiting outside my office as I gave away books. Because not only did I have books I bought, that my alumni and the friends of my alumni and their parents and brothers, 
they would give me books. Right. At a point in time when libraries don't even accept books. So, but artists like holding things and looking at them, even ones that like the internet. Yeah. So, you know, there was a line a block and a half long of students that, that, and that line didn't get any longer or shorter as the day passed and everybody left with books. Wow. That's <laughs> really cool. What a great story. Yeah. Is but there as one far as one, one, you know, one book, oh my gosh, how old would that person be? <laughs> you can tell us more than one. Well, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's like a kid, I'd have them read The Wizard of Oz and look at those illustrations. Mm. <laughs> you know, cool, even today. I like that. Very I don't think answer. those have gone, gone long. If it's somebody in the fine arts, I'd have them, I would direct them, and I did this many times. I would direct them, but first knowing what kind of artwork they were, they, I would recommend a particular museum bookshop. I said, go to that bookshop mm. and browse, you know, so that mm. they, could, they could pick out things that they like. Maybe it was somebody like Kenny Sharp, or maybe it was somebody else like Charles Birchfield. You know, there's a lot of room in the mm. art world for people who fall into the Southwest American artist aesthetic. And there's a whole magazine dedicated to just that. It's very different than people mm. who, who fall into the realm who like hyper-realism, which is very right. different. Than, than the group of people that fall into, you know, a whole bunch of other kinds of topics like ancient Greek, you know, or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I love drawing. So some of the general uh, books that I have on drawing, although these are a bit dated, there's Yale, The Primacy of Drawing, Histories and Theories of Practice, mm. New Perspectives in Painting, you know, P1 cool. and P2, Painting Today. You know, it was like a popular publication, the drawing book. You know, I mean, if if you're a person into drawing, very cool. But you know, this I have a big library at home, despite how many things I gave away. You know, there's several yeah, books, books are great. People need business. I just gave away another box of books just last week, and the week before that, I gave away a box of books. I still have books. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's wonderful. You know, books are wonderful. And I, I do think that going and visiting a museum bookshop is a really unique idea. And if you don't have one, you can always just go to a regular bookstore or go to the used bookstore. I have a lady nearby that owns a used bookstore, and I love digging up old, old books. Absolutely. Art because they have such different perspectives. Museums are great, though. Like when I went to the Louvre for the first time, Oh, my gosh. And I went there every day for three days through their whole painting collection. And mm. I got, and I had permission to take pictures of certain things. And then I went back and I got a book, very expensive, called The Complete Works of Art in the Louvre. Right? Oh, wow. Had to have yeah. that. Had to take that home. And then I looked up two or three favorite artworks that were not like anything I'd ever seen before. And I looked them up in the back of the book and they weren't in there. So then, so then, so then I called, I called the curator of collect. And then at first I talked to people in the bookstore. I said, oh no, everything's in there. Everything. I said, no, it's not, you know? And I said, here, here's, I took a photograph. I always take a picture of the label when I do that too. So I had the acquisition number too. I said, look, this is not there. And there was glass over the piece. So, you know, I needed a better picture, you know, for my lecture. Yeah. <laughs> so I had to talk to the curator of collections. I had to make an appointment. Not not oh, every well, 
you know, if you, if you want to be in illustration, of course, you're going to have subscription to Illustrator's Annual. Oh, good advice. Uh, if, if you're going to be in sculpture, I'm not sure what your main book is going to be. But there's bound to be one out there. What What's the primary publication, magazine-wise, in your field? You know, you have to name a field and find the publication. Mm-hmm. Good advice. Good not, advice. Not an easy question. Not an easy question. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for this conversation. I've had so much fun. Oh, well, you've been wonderful. You let me go on and on and on. <laughs> and uh, I hope I haven't bored you. Not I'll at become all. too tedious on any given topic. I uh, so you've been very patient. Oh, not at all. I enjoy enabler. these podcasts. So You're enabler. I'm an enabler. I'm an you enabler. Are. Totally. You <laughs> are. Especially you for are. artists. Thank you. That's what this podcast is all about: is enabling artists to share all they've learned over the course of years and years and years. And thank you. It's just thank amazing you. all the different the different um, genres and the different advice and so cool well that's it for the artist appeals I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it I just love talking with all these artists and business people it's phenomenal and I've learned so much I hope you've learned something too you can get more information you can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com that's the artist appeals a p p e a l s dot com. Thanks and have a good one.